Welcome to Four Generations to Come, a podcast by Generations Church. We are a community of everyday people committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. Whether you are re-listening to a Sunday teaching or listening to the playback because you weren't able to join us live during our Sunday gathering, we're excited to connect with you. We hope to see you this summer at our midweek meetups across the Northwest. You can also check out the playlist for the Songs We Sing series on our website or social media. Behind every song is a story, a personal story or the story of Scripture. What we sing shapes us. Whether it's the kid song in your head that you can't seem to shake, or the tune to which you cling when difficulty arises. The songs we sing during our gatherings remind us of who God is and what He has done, as well as who we are in Him. In our summer series, we take a look at the meaning behind the music to help us live our liturgy, so that our faith is an everyday faith. The songs we sing shape us. May they help us become more like Jesus. Enjoy today's teaching. Um, we are going to continue our series in uh, Songs We Sing, and I'm, I'm loving the series. I don't know about you guys, but I love it. The great, great speakers, whoever spoke the last two weeks, did a pretty good job. I ain't going to lie. I'm excited for the speaker today. It's going to be a tough act to follow, but he's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. Um, I'm having too much fun. I love hosting. I love it. But uh, behind every song is a story, a personal story or the story of Scripture. What we sing shapes us. The song in your head that you can't seem to shake or the tune you cling to when difficulty arises. The songs we sing remind us of who God is and what he has done and, and who we are. Today we are covering the song House of the Lord. I'm going to be reading in today's passage. It's going to be 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. should be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. We have some Bibles on our response tables on either side of the room. That's just a little gift for you if you want. If not, like I said, it'll be up on the screens or if you brought your own Bible. Good job. And uh, you can follow along with me. But 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Will you guys bow with me? God, I just thank you for all the people in this room and watching us online. Lord, I just ask that you speak through Kyle now that we can receive your message, Lord, and, and, and grow closer to you and and grow our love with you. And it's in your name. Amen. Amen. Songs we sing. Living our liturgy. Hey, so I got a question right here off the top. If someone were to ask you in everyday conversation, where does God live? What would you say? You know, Richard joked with me the last couple of weeks that I gave him some uh, easy 
songs to work through and made, made his comments abundantly clear. So I figured we'd start off with an easy question to think about. If someone were to ask you, you're in a coffee shop, you're, you're hanging out with some teenage kids, you're bumming around in your car with some friends, you're, you're out to eat, and you get to talking about some spiritual things, and maybe they're a believer or not believer, and you start to talk about who God is, what He's done, but maybe it comes up like, where is God? Where is he? What, what type of things might you say or share? And depending on who you're with, you may get all kinds of responses. You may get something like, well, he's up there, or uh, he's in the church, or in the church building, or he's in our hearts, or he's everywhere. But time within history might change that answer as well. And temples are the overlap of the divine and imminent. And the Bible believes this too. Because if you were to go back and look in really the major section within the Old Testament in the first half of your Bible, you'd go back and you'd learn about a city called Jerusalem. And this, during Bible times, if you went back to the city, the biggest thing that you would see in this city was the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon, kings of the nation of Israel. And they believed it was the home of God, the God of the universe. In Psalm 122 verse 1, David writes, I was glad when he said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord describing the temple, writing out poetry that to be at the temple was to be in God's presence. So where is God's home? Some of you know me well, and I like to muddy the water and uh, mix it up a little bit. So let's take a look at what it means to and understand what a temple is. The whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. This was the purpose of the temple. The temple is where God was to live and rule in those times, all creation as king. The building, the temple, but can never contain the God of the universe, though. This building was ultimately a symbol that pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And if you went back and read how the Bible opens and deduced the type of worldview that a follower of God would have and understanding the follower of, of Yahweh, this God, this creator, king, and said, okay, how should we think about the world and how the world came into existence and what that means for our life, the very first pages of the Bible introduce you to a God who creates who rules and reigns and everything is good. And on the seventh day of this creation story, in the beginning pages of the Bible, God rests. And really, his presence fills the earth like air filling a balloon. All creation is where God intends to dwell. 
And then as the story continues, as, as this, the, the beginning pages of Scripture shape your worldview, you meet two people in the garden called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. More on that in a moment. There, in Eden, God and humanity live together. They dwell. And it's a beautiful picture of presence, proximity, of relationship, of humanity being dependent on God with God. So fast forward to the temple. Inside this temple was filled with both garden and heavenly images. A physical place for people to look to, to see and experience God, how he intended humanity to dwell with him. In the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites were to work and to keep the temple in God's presence. This is exactly the human job description given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. So these humans were the first priests. Instead of ruling with God, though they wanted to make decisions on their own. They wanted to rule on their own terms. And Israel's leaders followed suit. And both sets were exiled. And as they were exiled, their temples, the overlap, was destroyed. And they were left wondering, are we on our own? Where are you, God? Humanity was given a divine job description to rest and rule with God, to delight in Him and demonstrate who He is to the rest of the world. And when handed that job description, each and every one of us intentionally, consciously or unconsciously, take that job description on a metaphorical piece of paper, crumple it up, and toss it. We think we're better at being God than God. We've been handed an opportunity to receive God's love and blessing and display that, to receive that, to live in community with God and enjoy Him, to delight in Him. But we think we can find happiness elsewhere. We think we know what's best for our life. And we think we can do a better job than God. And in turn, we always tend to make God and project back onto him what we think is right and make him in our own image. Chances are, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, if you could redesign your own life, you would probably change a few things. Even those of you who sit back and go, yeah, like, life's pretty good. I don't have much complaints. I got a pretty good, nice car, decent house, enjoyable family. You probably have a few areas of your life that you'd like to rearrange, like the furniture in a house. If you could do some renovation, you would. Even those moments when you're like, yeah, it's pretty good. No complaints here. But I think for most of us, we've got some areas And we go, something's off. It's not quite right. I need this fixed. Because it would make life easier. It'd feel a little bit better for me. Maybe it'd even be better for someone that we love and care about. And we just need something fixed so like they could be happy or good. 
And when we look around, it's not panning out how we had hoped. In fact, the biblical prophets talk a lot about this, about how when humanity gets a hold of our own job description and try to create a world on our own terms with our own perspective, that it ultimately it usually ends up in chaos and destruction. And they anticipated the day when God would create a new temple with a new priesthood. And that's when God would fill creation totally with his presence. Eventually, the biblical story goes where this people who were to represent God to the nations, physically in that time and place, they did return to the land. They did try to rebuild the temple, but the temple didn't turn out the way they had hoped. And Malachi, a prophet, near the the turn from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the prophet even said the temple was hopelessly corrupt. But what's amazing and is so good is the story doesn't stop there. We learn in the beginning pages of the New Testament about a guy who shows up on the scene and talks about how God's presence is in him and wants to come to him, through him, to others. And how God's rule and reign and his rest was coming back to earth and to the world in a new way. And he presented himself as a new kind of priest. Though he wasn't a priest who worked in the temple, Jesus said that God's presence, his rest, and his rule was filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. And Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple, and this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. Not just a place for a people, but a person for a people. The claim that Jesus makes, though, is that the movement was not going to stop with him. After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they would become his many temples throughout the earth. Communities of people where God's rule and reign would be witnessed and looked to and seen the beauty and goodness of God, how it was intended to be in the beginning. And one of Jesus' disciples writes about this, describes the vision of, for the church, for for a people responding to Jesus in everyday things of life, of what it looks like for these people, for this church, to be the place where others could see God's goodness and beauty. And 1 Peter, he writes to the church in exile, wondering, Where are you, God? Are you going to show up in our day-to-day life? We need your help. And he writes this. So rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure spiritual milk that you may grow by it for your salvation. Since you have tasted that the Lord is good. Coming to him. 
a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen and valuable to God. You yourselves as living stones are being built into spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And Peter continues down in verse 9. He says these words that Richard read for us. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and to his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. We, collectively, are God's new temple. Those of us who had said yes to Jesus, surrendered our lives in baptism, and are responding in the day and day life. God's presence dwells in you and with us. We are God's mobile home. The way we set up shop, We take God on the road. People don't have to come into this facility to experience the goodness of God. When we show up in the park, like next Sunday, like we're going to do, God's presence is there. We don't need people to walk through the doors. We get to take the show on the road. Where we live, work, and play. Together. When we show up on the softball field. When we show up in our workplaces and we have spiritual conversations with others. When we recognize that we need to submit this area of life to Jesus collectively in our homes. In the cars where we go. We are God's mobile home. And he wants to take his glory and his goodness on the road. It was never meant to just stay in a central place. It was meant to expand out across the whole world. In the very beginning, the the beginning of Genesis, when it says, you'll take dominion and you'll rule, the priesthood, Adam and Eve, were to live in presence with God and expand that. We too are recipients of that same blessing and command to, to live in such a way that we delight in God's goodness and we demonstrate His goodness to others. See, we are the house of the Lord, those who have submitted their life to Him. We do not give ourselves over to our own destiny, but we receive a divine identity that empowers us to be a place where God and our location intersect. You are the place, we are the place collectively where heaven and earth intersect where God's goodness is coming to reality in our life. And when we submit and say yes, when, when we turn ourselves over and continually respond to His will and His way and learn to delight in Him, it can't help but overflow and radiate out from our presence wherever we are. Our human job description If you hear anything at all, hear this. Your sole responsibility in your day in and day out life is to delight in the Lord. And allow your delight in Him to demonstrate His love and who He is through your everyday living. Now that's easier said than done. (laughs) It's hard. I think uh, about this last week in particular. 
Over the last week, Ruth and I have had the privilege of retelling some of the story of how we got to Vancouver and how we moved here, why we moved here, and then the story of generations. And I find myself in retelling the story that I, Ruth and I were talking about this last night. I almost want to pretty it up. Because there have been moments that have been absolutely frustrating, discouraging, difficult. Where, 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 where your mental state, where, where you're trying to do something for God that, that you almost go into a depression and you're frustrated when people won't respond the way you want them to respond. I mean, and some of you can laugh and you go like, yeah, we, we've been there. And it's not just a, a church thing. Think about your normal life. It, you, as you reflect back on the journey of your own life, you probably have moments where you're like, if I could just grab someone by the shoulders and look them in the eye and be like, what are you doing? Change your course. Respond in this way. Do something different. And they go like nod their head like yes. And then five minutes later they do something completely different. And it's frustrating. And you're like, have I not been clear? Have I, have I been miscommunicated? And, and, and as you wrestle in your own soul, sometimes you're even like just disgusted that they would even think of doing something different. And it almost lends it to despair. And probably any other negative words that start with D that I can throw out there. You know, I, discouragement, difficulty, disgust, I, I keep going there. And while I know I can try to, to, to pretty it up and overcomplicate and even overly analyze. One of the things is I found some common elements in sharing and swapping stories with others. Is that there is a beauty of God's goodness coming out when we are desperate and dependent on him. When, when, when we go from trying to white-knuckle our way through life and maintain control to relinquishing it, those of you who play golf and we talk, we do a lot of sports metaphors around here, so I know, I know some of you are like tired of this, but it's like, it's like when you try to swing golf and you try to muscle the ball and get it where it goes, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And what happens is we, we sense a disconnect and, and discontentment in our soul. And there's some responses that come out. Some of you may be like, oh, I'm not sure what you're getting out here, but, but you can understand and you feel some of these emotions. A simmering anger. Probably not enough to be noticed by others, but you feel it bubbling just beneath the surface. Knowing that if something says the wrong thing, you could just lash out. That also maybe borderlines on disgust of like, how could they? Maybe there's a tendency to shift blame. Or as I like to say, provide a little more context to the story so that you can yeah, be in the right. Or even self-absorption where you go, I don't have time for others. I just got to focus on myself. I don't really think about others. I just, I'm just going to do me. I'm going to stay in my lane and I'm not going to care. And we retreat. In all of those moments, the emotions that are very valid and we feel, if we're not able to process them in a healthy way, 
and see them transformed. We see ourselves drift towards isolation. And remember, we're to be a people who delight in the Lord and demonstrate him collectively together. So when we drift towards isolation, we sabotage our divine identity that God calls us to in this time and in this place. I don't think I'm alone in this. Chances are you've caught yourself attempting to do something different, to take back that control. And even wondering, is this all there is? I've seen healthy friendships and marriages start to disintegrate. I've heard people just say it's their own fault. Let them deal with it. Just be disgusted. And what's happening is a poison has both seeped into our souls and through the pressure of sin that was always present within us, that sin has begun to seep out. But the antidote to this poison, to this sin, to this bitterness, to this disgust, is cultivating joy in the Lord. It's in the middle of self-reflection that Phil Wickham wrote the song, House of the Lord. Listen to the story behind the song. He says, I wrote this song, House of the Lord, in the middle part of 2020, the most frustrating part of the year. A year because of the pandemic where we weren't allowed to meet in the literal house of the Lord. But when I realized at this time that was that the house of the Lord is not something that's made by hands or by man. It's you and it's me who call ourselves believers in Jesus. He continues, joy isn't based on circumstance. If it was, it would come and go. Our joy is found in the person of Jesus. And he is never failing. He conquered sin and death. And he never changes. He says, we are forgiven. We are redeemed. And we are set free. We serve a God who delights in us and demonstrates his love for us. Therefore, we can increase our delight when we mess up and when others do too. That's what joy is. It's delighting in who God is, not what we can get out of him, not what we expect of him, but in who he is. And it's learning to relish in his presence, to, to, to be thankful, the simple fact That he moves towards us when we would rather isolate, when we would rather run and hide, when we would rather be closed off because it's easier, it's simpler, more is in our control. But we know in our heart of hearts, the more we try to muscle, the more we try to white knuckle ourselves through life, the less control we actually have. And we begin to understand what true joy is. It's important to remember that joy is not strictly an emotion. We might refer to it as a supra-emotion of sorts because it can go on top and connect with other emotions. For example, if I lose my job, this is not usually considered a joyful occasion. Instead, I'm probably feeling some sort of combination of sadness, fear, and anger. However, when I experience those unpleasant emotions and can simultaneously feel that God is simply with me, I have added joy to the mix. If I've 
close friends who are also happy to be with me in my loss. My joy magnifies even more. Now I'm feeling sad and joyful. Fearful and joyful. Angry and joyful. Joy does not replace the unpleasant emotions. Instead, it combines with my emotion to keep me relationally connected in distress. The importance of joy to our brain highlights the fact that we must suffer. We must endure in community. It's important why we gather together. It's not because this is where God's presence is, so we got to go to the place to get God's presence. It's because we are together in community, sharing our common suffering, and as we traverse through this world, knowing that as God's presence is in us individually and collectively, we will feel and embrace His presence all the more, because we were not meant to suffer alone. We need to lean on God and other people in times of distress. I think of the psalm that, that David wrote. And there, there are many psalms, but this one kept coming back to my mind this week as I thought about the house of the Lord. And I just want to read this for you. The words that he pens to describe who God is and what he has done and how when we gather together, we can feel God's presence and know that who he was and is will be true in the future. So Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? When evildoers come against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumble and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart is not afraid. Though war breaks out against me, still I am confident. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking Him in His temple, for He will conceal me in His shelter. In the day of adversity, He will hide me under the cover of His tent. He will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me, and I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Lord, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me and answer me. My heart says this about you. You, seek my, you are to seek my face. Lord, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, Lord, the Lord cares for me. Because of my adversary, show me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path. Do not give me over to the will of my foes your, or false witnesses. Rise up against me, breathing violence. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and courageous. Wait for the Lord. Let's be honest for a moment, friends. We don't always feel like this is true. 
we hear words like this and we so desperately want them to be true. We maybe even cognitively know that they're true. We hear the truth and it penetrates our soul, but it's hard to feel it. We've believed lies that say we don't deserve this. We don't deserve God's goodness. We don't deserve the job. Or we'll never be good enough. We've also believed the lies that say I deserve more. That God's holding out on me. But what gives us direction when we waffle from defeat to entitlement is the presence, the word of the Lord, the reminders, the stories of the people that said, I have felt God's goodness and he reminded me, he protected me. When we are able to remind each other of the stories of God's faithfulness, of how what's been true in the past can and will be true in the future. It may not work out how we always want it to. We might not always see the dots connect in our timeline, but we know that God will be consistent with who He always has been, and we are reminded by the stories from the Scriptures and also from the stories of the songs we sing. They remind us of the timeless truths of God who is and what he has done for us. That God showed up in flesh so that we no longer have to go to a physical place to connect with God, but he meets us where we are. That his very presence can permeate our being. That the holy disruption that we feel when the status quo is upended in our lives is a hearkening or a reminder for God dependence. That the great beliefs of Christianity are no longer to be seen as just timeless truths, but to be lived realities wherever we find ourselves. That as we show up for work, our work is worship because we can delight in His presence. That He is there to meet us in our difficulties, in our struggles. And that's why this song reminds us so much that we are to shout and to sing. There's joy in the house of the Lord. And we will not be silent. Because why I may not feel it in this moment. I hear and I see when someone says there's an answered prayer. Or God's worked in this way. And I'm able to share that and say God make that true in my life. In my relationships. In my marriage. In my family. God we need you. May we be transformed from disgust to desperation, to dependence, so that we can discover delight. When we sing House of the Lord, we aren't singing for that matter that God is here physically in this building and only this time in this place, but it's building habits, reminding us that we are God's mobile homes and that we can be grateful that God goes with us wherever we go. So when we sing, when we shout, gratitude helps us develop joy pathways in our mind. My encouragement for you this week is in every conversation, rather than be the first to complain, to analyze, to bring out the complexity, and I'm the worst at it, y'all know, but to be grateful. Share your gratitude. And out of your gratitude, you will develop joy. And out of joy, people will go, how do I get more of that? And in that you say, there's a God who has moved towards you, who delights in you and wants you to delight in him.
Let's demonstrate that together. So I'm going to pray. Richard's going to come up and lead us in how we're going to respond. The band's going to come up and lead us in a few songs. And over the next several songs when we sing and as we respond together, this is a time just to be grateful. Whether through song, maybe through going and sharing how you're grateful for someone else in the room. And maybe even eventually communion where we get to reflect on his sacrifice that God moved towards us and he delights in us and moved towards us and reconciled us back. And he demonstrated that through Jesus. Let me pray. God, you are good. Right now, overwhelm us with your presence. Help us to delight in you. Inspire us to go demonstrate that through gratitude this week. Fill our hearts, fill this presence, fill this place, place, Lord. We need you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Four Generations to Come, a podcast by Generations Church. If you want to know what's happening around the church, please visit mygenerations.com. Church. There you'll see opportunities to connect through activity groups and events, as well as gatherings you can attend. We also want to hear your story, how God is working in your life. So jump on over there to our website and share your story. Share how God is at work in your life. And if you're going through a difficult time where you even have some praises, we would love to be able to pray with you and for you. There'll be a button there to do that as well. Have an incredible week.